Today's uh, reading is from various parts of Exodus chapters 5 through 7. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, and why should that, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before, and don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the word work harder for them so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. You will take, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and 80, Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Let me read actually a few more verses in that same chapter, continuing on in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake, 
Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The word of the Lord. We are looking at this passage today as part of our continuing series, our study of the book of Exodus, a well-known set of narratives, a revelation of the heart of God, a God of deliverance. And over the next couple of months, uh, we'll be studying this book, a joy to do that with you. And just a reminder, as we jump into this passage, that we'll have our Q&A time, a time when you can ask questions right after the sermon. So anything that comes to your mind, feel free to jot down a question or feel free to uh, be ready uh, to uh, lift up any thoughts, questions, doubts uh, on your mind. Would love to engage you right after the sermon. Let's pause. And let's pray first of all. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we can pay attention to your word. Thank you that your promise gives us eager expectation to know that these aren't just human words that we speak, that we hear, that we read, but rather they are the very words of God, which means anything can happen. Our hearts can change, lives can change. Scales can fall from people's eyes to see the glory of God and the beauty of Jesus. And we pray, in fact, that you would do that. We trust in you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we go again. Perhaps you've heard or noticed we are facing yet another toilet paper shortage. Another toilet paper shortage in America, just like we did not long ago in 2020. No one's perfectly sure what's causing it. Some combination of panic buying and disruptions in the supply chain, they say. But did you know that this has actually happened before? It's not a new occurrence in recent American history. In fact, nearly 50 years ago, in 1973, the nation was already on edge. The stock market had just crashed early in the year. An oil embargo sent gas prices skyrocketing. And then one night, talk show host and comedian Johnny Carson said in his opening monologue, you know what else is disappearing from the supermarket shelves? Toilet paper. There is an acute shortage of toilet paper in the good old United States. We've got to quit riding on it. And it was a joke, but 
it didn't matter, viewers decided that they weren't going to take any chances. So almost immediately, millions of Americans ran out and swarmed into grocery stores and began hoarding toilet paper. And for four months, all across the country, you know, that one aisle in the supermarket, it was completely bare. The great toilet paper scare of 1973 was born. Well, that was a little silly, and that was just toilet paper, but sometimes shortages can be a bigger deal. Like in the year 2000, also not too long ago, when a fuel shortage brought the United Kingdom to a virtual standstill. For a moment, it seemed as though the nation's whole economy might even collapse. So imagine what it was like when a few years before then, God through Moses miraculously turned the Nile River into blood and water all across Egypt came into short supply. This time, Johnny Carson had nothing to do with it. The Nile River was, of course, a source of sustenance and transportation and irrigation. It was the lifeblood of the ancient Egyptian economy. It almost be like for one week, DC water turned off all the spigots and Giant and Safeway and Whole Foods were all closed and I-95 and Metro trains and buses and National Airport all shut down. Oh, and the internet went out too. Now we're talking. It was devastating to Egyptian life. We can barely even imagine it. God changed the water in the Nile River into blood. This was one of actually 10 great plagues that God visited upon Egypt. A sequence of terrible things that happened and that were recorded in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. Water was turned into blood. Then there were swarms of frogs, gnats, flies. Livestock became diseased and died. Egyptians were afflicted by boils. Then there were hailstorms, locusts, utter complete darkness, and even the death of every firstborn son. Now we're only looking at the first of those plagues as representative of all the others. But they were devastating, every single one of them. But hold on, how did we get here in this story where God is wreaking havoc across the land? Let's rewind just for a moment. God appeared to Moses through a burning bush, as we saw last week. And he commissioned Moses to go and to confront Pharaoh and deliver God's people, the Israelites, who had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years, for generations. And after a good bit of hesitation, Moses, together with his brother Aaron, went to Pharaoh. And as we see in the opening verses of our reading today, they said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And those amazing words are repeated several times throughout this passage, 
in chapter 5, verse 1, in chapter 6, verse 11, in chapter 7, verse 16, let my people go. It's an amazing command because it was directed at arguably the most powerful man in the entire world at the time, Pharaoh. It was also an amazing claim. God is saying that the Israelites rightly belong to him, God, not Pharaoh, despite all those centuries of enslavement. And it's also an amazing comfort. It certifies that God has not forgotten his covenant, his promises to his people. And he's heard the cries of his suffering ones, let my people go. But Pharaoh said no. Again and again and again, Pharaoh said no. And this is really what we have all throughout these chapters in these early pages of Exodus, from chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 12. Narrative after narrative and scene after scene of Pharaoh essentially saying no, 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 no. And it's here in the story of the Exodus that we get a vivid look into Pharaoh's world-class resistance against God and his hardness of heart. In other words, these chapters teach us a few things, not everything, but a few things about what the nature, about the nature of what the Bible calls sin and evil. It tells us a few things about sin. It tells us that sin enslaves. Sin resists, sin oppresses, and sin worships. Let's take a look at each of those. First point, sin enslaves. First of all, this is true literally and physically. Of course, slavery is one of the great expressions of human sin. Chapter 6, verse 7, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. In chapter 5, verse 6, we find references to slave drivers and forced labor. This, of course, this slavery is the historical backdrop to the entirety of the story of the Exodus. You see, it's important for us to understand in the first place that Pharaoh wasn't foremost a metaphor. He was a man, a bad man. And the slavery of the Israelites, though there are layers of meaning that we're to draw from as Christians reading the Bible, that slavery was real and it was terrible. Slavery, of course, still does exist even today and even in this country in the form of forced labor, in the form of human trafficking. It's a terrible, evil expression of the human will to exercise false and evil dominion over other image-bearing human beings. This here is also an important reminder that our physical condition, our material condition, even our economic and political condition matters to God. Our outward condition matters to God, not always in all the ways that we think. But God doesn't treat us like disembodied peoples, mere souls floating around untouched by the brokenness of the world. No, no. God has compassion for you, all of you, soul and body. 
Sin enslaves us literally and physically, but it also enslaves spiritually. This is important too. In fact, the New Testament looks back on the Exodus and occasionally, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it talks about the Exodus as a spiritual liberation as well. The Bible has a lot to say about what it calls the enslaving power of sin. That sin is not just something that you do, a couple bad things, a couple selfish things. It's a cancer of the heart. And it, it binds you, it keeps you in bondage, such that the apostle would even say, it's because of sin that even when I want to do good, I can't do it. And even when I don't want to do evil, I do do it. There's a war, it's hard, it's addictive, it's slavery. Places like Romans 6, 2 Peter 2, 9, that describes us in our natural human condition as slaves to depravity. Jesus himself said it in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Of course, the good news of God's grace of the gospel is that Jesus came to die, to rise again, to free us from our sins by his blood, Revelation chapter 1. And as we're told in Romans chapter 8, Jesus will even liberate not just our souls from sin, the bondage of sin, but even one day when he returns, our bodies too, our material outward condition will be fully liberated from all sources of evil and sin as well. All of creation, in fact, we're told, is eagerly waiting and groaning for that day, the liberation of all of creation. But as it is, however, sin enslaves, even hardened hearts. That's what we find in Pharaoh. It's a story of a heart that's hard. What does that mean? It means a heart that's not supple, that doesn't respond, that is untouched by the word of God, by the love of God, by the life of other people, our neighbors. See, here's the irony. Pharaoh was the one commanding slaves, and yet on this day, in this passage, Pharaoh was actually the most deeply enslaved person in Egypt of all of all. A slave to his own hard heart. Are you aware of the story of sin as an enslaving power? Does it bring you to your knees seeking the liberating power of the love of God? Sin enslaves, number one. But number two, sin also resists. A simple point and a quick one. But we saw in chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And also in chapter 7, verse 4, God says to Moses, He will not listen to you, referring to Pharaoh. And in verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is, what? Unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Again and again, the Bible tells us that our sin is rebellion against God. See, it's not only an act that hurts and harms other people. It is that transgressions against the call to love our neighbor, our selfishness, our stealing, our slander. Yes, it, it, there are ways in which we hurt other people, but deeper inside of it all, 
We are rebelling against the very word of God, the love of God, the glory of God. Sin at its heart is saying no to God. Again and again, even in this passage, the language that's used tells us that the big question that emerges from these pages is, whom will you serve? Will it be Pharaoh or will it be God? For Pharaoh himself, will it be God or will it be you? Theologian Goran Larson described the dynamics of this passage in this way, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge. Who has authority over the people of Israel and ultimately over all nations and all of creation? The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh. Sin resists against God. And this invites us to consider any way that you and I might be resisting God with a stubborn heart. Would you dare to reflect on that today? Is there any way that you're just not allowing the love of God to penetrate your heart? The words of God, the call of God to move you. The great hope that we have, even in our moments of hardness, is that Jesus came to make our hearts soft. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel tells us more than make it soft, he makes us have a heart transplant. That's what the Spirit of God does. We're told that he replaces our hearts of stone, our, our Pharaoh-like hard hearts, replacing our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. Hearts that are responsive to God, that are humbled before God, that are eager to love God, only possible by God's Spirit. Have you come to Jesus recently and asked him for a new heart, a soft heart? Thirdly, sin oppresses. Sin enslaves, sin resists, sin oppresses. One of the amazing messages of the story of Exodus is the way that God's heart is attuned to the suffering of his people. Again and again, we're told that the people of Israel cry out to their God. And the amazing thing is that we're told that God hears their cry. He's attentive to their suffering. He doesn't look past it and let it bounce off his heart. He doesn't ignore their pain. We're told about their groaning in chapter 1. We're told in verse 11 of chapter 1 that slave masters oppressed them with forced labor. They did so ruthlessly and with cruelty in verse 14 of chapter 1, we're told. And in verse 23 of chapter 2, we're told the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out in their cry for help because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning. But we're told again and again that this was not just a generalized suffering. There was something specific going on in Egypt. And we see this in the exchange between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron. The way in which when Moses called Pharaoh to let his people go, Pharaoh responded, oh, what are you doing? Get back to work. When they said, no, 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 you need to let us go and worship our God, let God's people go, says the Lord, Pharaoh said, why, so they can stop working? 
with all these, this talk about going out and leaving Egypt, it's just because they're lazy, he says. They don't want to work. Why aren't you working? Will you work already? Isn't that what you're here for? Isn't that who you are? Work. Labor. You see, the kind of oppression that the Bible here is depicting for us is essentially a sin that dehumanizes those who are made in the image of God. What Pharaoh is illustrating is the way in which sin causes us essentially to commoditize human beings and, in fact, human life. Where we use people, instrumentalize them, as though they only exist for our own benefit, even our material profit. Where we treat them, let's be more personal, where we treat each other as if we were machines. Things that only exist for our own pleasure, comfort, or advancement. Machines, not human beings. Or the way that we measure the worth of people uh, by their efficiency, by their productivity, by their output, such that we barely know what to do with people that we deem to be non-contributing members of society. Dehumanizing those made in the image of God. The ways then we create a whole society around this. A system of anxiety, an anxiety system, as scholar Walter Brueggemann calls it, that pervades our, our social environment where we're defined then by our busyness and we don't know any other mode of existence. We're defined by our, our, our acquisitiveness, the things that we gain, the things we produce, the pursuit of more in our economics, in our per, per, personal relations, as well as our professional ones. All of life oriented around production, achievement, dehumanization. And then, of course, we see the way in which when you try to resist the system, as Moses and Aaron did in calling uh, Pharaoh to uh, set his people free, you then have retaliation and punishment. Uh, Pharaoh saying, no, if, if you dare to say that to me, then I'm going to double their labor. Removing straw that holds the bricks together, now making their work even harder the way in which I will add it to their affliction, punish them even more, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Verse 9. God rescues us from this kind of dehumanization. In fact, this is one reason for which Christ had come, isn't it? to restore us into the image of God, to make us human all over again. Colossians 3. Uh, to make us more fully all that God created us to be. Loving God and loving neighbor. God calls us into this newly fashioned humanity. This is what Jesus offers us. Not just a more carefree life, and not just a little bit of a, a spiritual bump to, to make you, help you get through the day or through the pandemic. He doesn't just give you help. He gives you life. He gives you humanity. 
He restores us, doesn't he? And it's important to notice that what he sets us free from is not just a few mean characters, an individual pharaoh in our lives here or there, but rather what he sets us free is from human systems of oppression, of evil. See, not just cruel individuals, but cruel institutions that oppress and enslave. You notice what Israel was subjected to was not just human meanness and unkindness, but a whole administrative structure that kept them enslaved. We see in chapter 5, verse 6, a reference to Pharaoh giving an order to slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. There was a whole administrative structure in which, by which this evil was perpetuated. These were decrees, laws that Pharaoh was issuing. The way in which sin becomes an infiltrating force in society, not just contained in the hearts of individuals, but one that pervades the very structures of our society. Even as we said in one of the sentences in our confession of sin earlier, we said our sin has infected every part of our lives. How much more so is that true if our lives include the writing of laws, the building of companies, the participation in social norms, the writing of unwritten decrees and laws as to how the world holds together. There's a hardness of heart of individuals like Pharaoh. There also is a hardness of society then in its oppression. Even as Dr. King himself wrote in the letter from a Birmingham jail, he said individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr, the Christian philosopher, has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. We need to remember the, the systems of oppression that often perpetrate more evil even than just evil individuals and the evil of their hands. Christ, of course, delivers us from this as well. This too is the promise of the gospel. As we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ, when he returns in the end, all the sources of evil will be subjected to him will be laid down at his feet and he will rule as the conquering king over all. And his people even today are called to carry out this emancipatory calling, being agents of liberation and love. As we're told in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Thus saith the Lord. Sin oppresses. But sin also, fourthly, worships. Sin worships. You might have noticed that a major theme in this passage is that of worship. It conveys, in fact, one of the chief purposes for which God says he wants to deliver his people, bringing them out of Egypt. Why? We're told in chapter 5, verse 1, let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Worship. It's for worship that God will set them free. And also in verse 3, let my people go, let us take a three-day journey in the wilderness. Why? To offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. 
for the purposes of worship. Chapter 7, verse 16. Let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. Why this emphasis on worship? Well, for one, it's what we were made to do. This is where our hearts are filled with delight, satisfaction, and life when we turn our souls upward. And when we give God praise, He gets the glory, we get the joy, and our lives are filled with meaning. God is saving us for praise unto God. But he's also doing this as a corrective measure for those who've dwelled in Egypt. And let me explain. What were these plagues in chapter 7 and beyond all about? Well, as we read this passage, we're told that a couple things were going on. In all ten of these different terriblenesses that God afflicted Egypt with. Well, first, this was a judgment upon Egypt, especially on Pharaoh. We're told in chapter 3, verse 20, that early on, God says, I will strike the Egyptians. These are judgments. This is how God described it even in chapter 6, verse 6. I will free you from being slaves to them, from the Egyptians, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. As I said before in the opening, God turning the Nile River to blood ground the Egyptian world to a halt. Everything stopped working because he penetrated right into the heart of Egyptian life. Their irrigation systems, their economic systems, their transportation systems, nothing worked for one whole week. This was debilitating to their livelihoods, and God's purpose was to humble them. And it almost worked. Pharaoh nearly relented, we're told in chapter 10, but then he changed his mind. And then in the end, one final act of judgment, the last straw that Yancey will preach about next week, that's what finally got a hold of Pharaoh. But until then, this far in the story, Pharaoh's heart remains hard and God's people remain in bondage. These signs, these plagues were judgment, but the second reason was that God was communicating. It's why God in the Bible calls these plagues not just nasty things, but miraculous signs and wonders, pictures. God is communicating something about himself over against these gods. And what was it? It's that he was God and they were not. It's that God was worthy of everyone's worship and the gods of the Egyptians were not. Do you understand, there's lots of historical references to the way in which the Nile River was actually seen as a source of the divine. In fact, there were three gods that were associated with the river Osiris, who was the god of the Nile, Nu, who was the god of life in the river, and Hapi, god of the flood, a fertility god that was portrayed as a bearded man with female breasts and a pregnant stomach. A strange image, 
The point was this, the Nile gave birth to Egypt and nursed its strength. We even have ancient recordings of words of praise in a hymn to this happy God, the giver of life, praising him as the Lord of sustenance who comes to deliver Egypt. So here's God striking the river, saying, in effect, how's your happy God now? Proving that these gods do not have the power to give life, to provide life, to be a true God. See, this was the case not only with this first plague, but every single one of the plagues. Not only with the water being turned to blood, but also the frogs. Did you know frogs were sacred in Egypt? So much so that you couldn't kill frogs in ancient Egypt. There was a goddess, Hecht, who was a goddess of life and fertility and labor and delivery, who was always portrayed with the head of frogs. See, God wasn't just sending out icky things to be annoying. God was declaring his supremacy over all gods, the one true God. The gnats. Yeah, look, it's possible that the Hebrew word actually refers not just to little, little gnats, but possibly to lice or to mosquitoes. There was in the Egyptian pantheon the earth god Geb. See, by turning the dust of the earth into bugs, God was showing his authority over the god of the ground in Egypt, the earth god Geb. There were swarms of flies, this next plague. The land was ruined by flies, we're told. Well, the word can refer to other kinds of biting or stinging insects. And so perhaps it referred to the winged goddess Wajet. Trying to make sure I pronounce that right. This fly, or perhaps to Beelzebub, the lord of the fly. See, God was waging battle. He was confronting the gods of Egypt, the livestock. Oh, horses and cows and donkeys and camels and, and, and goats were needed for food and milk and clothing and labor and transportation. There were many bull gods in Egypt, Bucus and Menevis and Ptah and especially Apis and the goddess Hathor, who was a god of love and beauty and motherhood. Isis, the queen of the gods, depicted with cow horns on her head. Boils, we're told, another plague. An infectious skin disease, possibly smallpox or anthrax. Here's God proving that the gods could not protect them from illness and disease. God's confrontation with the god or goddesses Amun-Re, the creator god who's described in one ancient text as a physician who heals. God is saying, no you don't. God attacking the gods of the atmosphere or the god Newt, the sky goddess, and Seth, the god of the wind and the storm, when he sends killer hailstorms. Or these locusts that just wiped out with millions of locusts wiping out miles and square miles of crops causing famine for years. You know, there was Min, the patron of the crops, and Nepro, the god of grain, and Anadis, the guardian of the field. And, and there's this darkness. What's up with the darkness? Well, do you know that the greatest god of them all, the head of the pantheon, Amun-Re, the creator god who was himself embodied in the sun, there's none beside him, says an ancient Egyptian hymn. There was none beside him. He would provide life 
as the sun shines its rays upon the earth. And here is God, the God of the Israelites saying, Nah, no you don't. I alone give life. I alone am the only true God. See, God was teaching the Israelites and the Egyptians who he truly was, the only God, the supreme God, the one who alone was worthy of their worship. He was turning their hearts to him, trying to destroy their idolatry and calling them back to himself. And you say, well, that was then. Surely that has nothing to do with us now. I wonder if we would be well served by considering briefly the false gods of our present age the false gods of our own culture. Uh, maybe we don't depict them with, with cattle horns, or maybe we don't depict them with little figurines. But I wonder if there are false gods among us, perhaps like these. Uh, consider the false god of radical independence. You know, that force within us, that value, that commitment that we have, that we give almost godlike status in American life. Where we believe that really true life is having freedom of choice of all kinds. Choice about how I uh, use my body. Uh, choice about how I use my will and my resources. Uh, choice about uh, what kind of decisions I make. And surely free. Free from the burdens of my neighbor. Free from the call of generosity. Free from the obligations of love. Free to per pursue life as I see fit. The false God of radical independence. I wonder also if there's the false God of prosperity. Of course, we are, we need to admit, infected by the love of money. The materialist culture that we live in where we seek to advance our lives without even knowing that we're doing that. It's just so built into the way that we think in this country, in this culture. Uh, thinking that the, the whole purpose is just to keep on advancing, advancing to the next stage of the American dream. Assuming that at that next plateau is where we will find fullness of life with almost near religious assumptions. You see it in the way that we assume that our world is made for our comfort. And if it's not, that's what our goal should be, to make it work for our comfort. And we surely assume the same of our God. That if our lives are not comfortable, what is God doing anyway? The way we bow our knees to the God of prosperity. The way we see it in our inability to suffer and struggle with patience and perseverance. The way that we assume that success is always the name of the game, even in church ministry. The way that we always assume that bigger is better and bigger is best. And then, of course, there's the false God of expressive identity. The way in which we assume that the whole purpose of our lives in modern American life, American life is simply to find yourself, your true self, and to then express that to the world, usually through an image, Instagram. The way in which we construct ourselves, almost literally creating a projection of what we believe we ought to be. The message of this culture is you be you, follow your heart. Identity is something that I discover deep inside or that I create and then express. Where our children are even then taught 
that they personally can and must just define who they are. Choose who you are and how you're going to personally, individually change the world. Yesterday, while moving through a wonderful museum in our city, yesterday with the whole family, I noticed a wonderfully printed quotation on the wall of this museum on our way out, right there in the front, a quote by Kermit the Frog, who I love, let me be clear, but here's the quote, life is like a movie, write your own ending. And I thought, what a burden to bear. Write the ending and the middle and the beginning of your life. Write your life. Get out your pen. Haven't you done it already? No wonder we're crumbling with anxiety. No wonder we can't bear up under the pressures of this society, the demands, the voices in our heads, the images on our screens, the things that we assume we need to live up to, the identities we believe that we need to construct, to express. Dear friends, we are, as every society is, a society plagued by false gods. God desires to liberate us. God desires to set us free. And Jesus sets us free indeed by showing us the true God. He says, know me. As God says, he, he says, I'm doing this exodus so that you will know me, not just to set you free, but in freeing you that you will know me. Because it's in knowing me and worshiping me that you will find your truest liberation, that you will find your truest identity as my people, where you will find true prosperity and flourishing, where you will find yourself in finding me. As Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 3, now this is eternal life, fullness of life, perfect life, never-ending life. This is eternal life. What? That they know me. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what Jesus has come to rescue us from. And as we close, I just want to remind you that this is therefore why the project of emancipation is so hard. Uh, the hardness of heart of Pharaoh that we detect in ourselves, the resistance that sin engenders, the refusal to see and know God, the hardness not just of ourselves individually, but ourselves as a whole society. Uh, God needs to come and confront us in love. God needs to come and invade our hearts with his mercy, with his forgiveness, with his grace. And this is precisely what the message of the Exodus is. In light of the reality of sin, the sin that enslaves, the, 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 the sin that resists, the sin that oppresses, the, the sin that worships false gods, God needs to come and save us. And this is precisely what God says. In chapter 6, verse 6, seven times a promise of what God will do because we cannot by ourselves. What God will do, 
I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is the grace of God, the God who rescues us by his initiative and by his power, who doesn't say, save yourself, fix yourself, liberate yourselves, turn your own hearts, soften your hearts, save yourselves. No, here's a God who says, that's my job. I will do it for you. This is good news because you can't. Friends, here's the central message of this passage in the face of sin and evil. Who is it that will deliver God's people? Who is it that will soften the hearts of the oppressor? Who is it that will achieve exodus and freedom in our lives? Who is it? God. God will do this. God alone can and God alone will. Let's pray. And so we want to believe these truths, this message of your grace, that for all that you teach us about the enslaving power of sin and the resistance of our hearts, it's true, we can't fix ourselves, free ourselves, save ourselves. We need you to do that, so come now in Christ. And for those that don't know you, will you today set them free? Give them hearts that humble themselves before you and receive Jesus even now as Savior, the one who died for them, rose for them, and promises to rehumanize them and give them life. And for those who already have, that you would refresh their hearts with this good news and send them a wave of liberating grace once again, that we might see your love and worship you and know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.